Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy and Yahoo co-worker, uh, live from location in Boston, it's Justin Cuthbert. Justin, what's going on, man? Not much. Just out of the uh, the war room, the makeshift war room there at TD Garden, and uh, ready to head home after a few days in Boston. It's fun here, but, you know, covering the NHL is a little bit better when you go home after. Yeah, well, we agreed to do this well before Game 2 started, and I was kind of crossing my fingers, hoping we'd have some storylines and talking points, and uh, I guess Game 2 tonight uh, certainly did not disappoint in that regard, so we've got plenty of stuff to dive into, and we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive of the first two games of Bruins Leafs, and then we're going to kind of look ahead and preview some of the rest of the series. So we're recording this on Saturday evening after Game 2, and we still don't know the result of what's going to happen with Nazem Kadri. We know he's been offered an in-person hearing, which means that it can go uh, north of five games in terms of suspension, but we don't know what's going to come of that yet. So um, we're going to kind of assume that he'll probably miss some extended period of time. What's kind of the vibe around there, and what are you thinking after after everything that went down tonight? Yeah, I think we can probably assume that he's going to be done for the series, and uh, I the Maple Leafs didn't make the same mistake twice like Nassim Kadri did tonight uh, and bring him out to talk to the media. I think that was uh, something they probably regretted doing last time. But it's funny. I mean, he promised that he would do it all over again because he's always going to stick up for his teammates, right? And he certainly did the wrong thing tonight because he's probably not going to be playing again in this series. Um, and it's interesting because in any other walk of life, dropping the gloves and fighting someone would be the opposite of what you're supposed to do. But if he just dropped his gloves and engaged in a fight, because it was brewing between him and Jake DeBrusque the entire game, instead of using the shaft of his stick and driving it through his face, uh, he would, wouldn't be missing any time. And the Maple Leafs would be able to move on in game plan for, obviously, the changes to matchups that Bruce Cassidy implemented today, which flummoxed them a little bit. And they'd be able to move forward and put their best foot forward. But now, I even wrote in my preview piece that, 
uh, there's a possibility of Kadri maybe not playing because of what happened last year and the, the emotions that that uh, he gets tied up in. And I thought they'd be better suited to deal with it because you obviously have John Tavares who knocked all the centers down a rung, and and now they have such more more depth through center. But I don't think they have an answer right now for the loss of Kadri because they were getting chewed up with him in the lineup. Yeah, they were. And we're going to talk more about matchups and sort of what they can do going ahead for the rest of this series. I, I guess while we're still on this, like I think it's my own personal hell to be like just condemned to a lifelong uh, just like suspension talk and, and just people arguing back and forth about the merits of stuff and how long guys should miss. I assume Kadri's probably going to miss at least three to five games and the rest of the series makes sense based on everything you outlined there. But I think you know, it's it's kind of a shame that it'll come back down to this because there's so much talent in this series and there's so many natural baked in storylines. But after game two, clearly the main talking point is the officiating that went on in this game. And I I, I should preface it. I don't think it's necessarily just exclusive to this series. I've been pretty much watching everything so far in the first couple of days of this postseason. And just like in past years, it seems like there's this recurring theme where both sides are equally unhappy at how the game's being officiated. And I understand that the game is so fast and so physical and there's so much going on that you're never going to get it right a hundred percent of the time. But this whole argument that just because it's the postseason, you kind of have to change your rule book and change the way you're going to officiate your games. I don't know. Does it bug you as much as it really seems to bug me and a lot of other hockey fans out there? Yeah. I mean, certainly. I mean, I, I sort of see one side of the coin where, where I, I, I think it should be a little less lenient, maybe with stick infractions, whatever. I think I'm sort of okay with that. But what happened tonight with Kadri happened because the officiating was either too lenient or just poor. I mean, he, he tied up with DeBrusque uh, in the first period. Uh, the confrontation was clearly initiated by DeBrusque. Kadri didn't even throw a punch, and he was getting walloped on uh, with while he was on his knees, and they both went off the ice. So I guess DeBrusque did get you know, a penalty, but that, that wasn't just, I don't think in the situation. Then we, then the next period we had the knee on knee hit, obviously uncalled as well to brusque on Kadri. And that's probably what threw him over the edge. It wasn't uh be hit on Patrick Marlowe. It was that he had been or felt mistreated to that point, And that's because the referees either missed the calls or put the whistles away. So that's what happens in playoff hockey. If they, if things build and build and build. And if the referees don't step in to, nip these things in the bud, you get these incidents uh, like the one we saw tonight. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see sort of some benefits to it. I see maybe it's a little bit more, you don't want to break up the action too much and the power plays are, are a big and exciting part of the game, but I can see the little ticky tack stick stuff not being called quite as harsh as maybe in the regular season, but not call knee on knee hits and, and guys clearly uh, taking advantage of certain situations and, and getting off scot free. Uh, it, it builds and it adds to the problems that we have. And, and, I, and I think that happened tonight. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm not, I'm not advocating for just a parade to the penalty box because no one wants to see that. Remember when the league tried to do that after the first lockout in 2005 and they thought they'd like artificially sneak one by the fans by inflating offense by just calling everything. And that was a very unesthetically pleasing product. But I do believe that you know, the players are creatures of habit. And if you have 82 games where you officiate the game a certain way, you kind of get used to knowing at least consistently what is and isn't going to be called and what you can get away with. And I think that maybe initially uh, players are going to get 
more more whistles called against them than they like. But eventually, if you just keep calling the rules consistently and you keep enforcing them, players are going to realize you can't get away with certain stuff and they'll eventually fall in line and stop trying to do that. Instead, when you open this door and it's kind of this mysterious, nebulous definition of what is and isn't a penalty, obviously certain players and certain teams are going to try to push the envelope to try and get away with as much as they can. And then that that's what leads to these sort of incidents, right? So it's like, it's kind of ironic because I, I understand why referees are doing what they're doing to get out of the way and let players dictate the outcome of the game. But by doing this, it actually kind of reaches the opposite effect where all of a sudden you have these games where it just benefits one team significantly more than the other. And I'm not here trying to say that the Leafs got screwed out of this game because I think they were going to lose game two regardless. The Bruins were clearly the superior team right from the jump. And it's just something that happens in the postseason where the calls sometimes go a certain way. And ultimately, that seems like it's not the best way to do business when you're trying to um, conduct a postseason where ideally the best teams and the most skilled teams are the ones and are ultimately going to wind up winning. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that that teams and players sort of get a feel of what they're allowed to do and what what they can get away with, I guess, in the in the regular season, and maybe that gets distorted a little bit in the playoffs. But the Bruins, I think they do have an advantage in this scenario because they seem to know exactly how far they can push it. I mean, the physicality, the difference between the two teams is remarkable. And the Bruins seem to be right on the edge of going over the line but rarely do. Now, they did a couple times, and Jake DeBrusque obviously should have been penalized for it, and there was the Pasternak hit on Muzzin, but they know how to use their physicality so much better than the Leafs do. And you see a guy like Freddie Gauthier try to be physical, and it just it doesn't work even, even slightly as well as everyone, 1 through 12 forwards, 1 through 6 defensemen can do that, that it happens, uh, or that the Bruins can do. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 such a difference between those teams and it was so apparent tonight. And like you said, I think when the, when it gets a little bit more lenient and they have a little bit more push or a little bit more uh, leash, especially for the Bruins, at least they can take advantage of that. And I think that's one of the differences in the series. Well, I think the biggest uh, part where this comes into practice actually is in terms of like um, off the puck obstruction and sort of interference and little bumps here and there where I understand you can't call everything, but obviously it makes sense as you're right. It's going to benefit a team like the Bruins. It's plays a bit more physical brand of hockey because when the Leafs are rolling and they're when they're absolute best, they want to play as fast as possible. They want to get into a track meet. They want to utilize their skill. And if you're able to slow them down uh, in whichever way possible, clearly that's going to benefit you. And that's sort of, I think we saw in game one, there were a couple times and finally they wound up making a call against Chara. Uh, I believe on Nylander up against the boards, but I feel like throughout these first two games, we've seen a lot of that sort of stuff where it's like, I think the Bruins just sort of realized like we can probably get away with a lot because we know the refs are going to let a lot go and not going to call everything. And ultimately, even if we wind up taking a couple interference penalties, it's going to be a net positive for us because we're going to stop so many rushes from materializing just by hitting these guys subtly uh, when they don't even have the puck. Oh, yeah. And it, and it's right out of the gate, too. I mean, the first five minutes in both games were absolutely dominated by the Bruins. and It does set the tone uh, for the rest of the game. I know, obviously, game one went a different way, but uh, the way that they're able to sort of chip away immediately and continue that and and push it, push it, push it. Eventually it gets to the Maple Leafs, it seems, and we've seen obviously in game two and a lot last year when they met in the postseason. Uh it's it's one of their one of their most productive tools and it's something that uh 
uh, they've taken full advantage of. Well, I think what makes this series interesting, and we're going to get away from the refereeing now, but um, it makes it so interesting above all else, uh, besides the history between these two teams, is that you're sort of kind of getting a little bit of everything from a storyline perspective, right? Like we come into game one and the Leafs obviously win the game and they do certain things well. And all of a sudden the story out of that is, you know, they bought into Mike Babcock's preachings. They learned from last year's mistakes. This is a new team that's going to focus on all the little things that's going to take to get by the Bruins. And then in the game two, right out of the gate, you see that Bruce Cassidy makes some adjustments. They're going for different matchups. They're playing differently. They're getting back to how they were playing when they were so successful in the regular season. And so it kind of it leads perfectly to that uh, beautiful part of a playoff series of a seven game series where you kind of have teams that are relatively equally matched trading shots and making adjustments and going from one game to another. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see this series turn into that type of a seesaw affair where the Leafs come out in game three with certain adjustments of their own and get back on top. But then it's up to the Bruins to do so in game four and so on and so forth. And I guess that's what makes this such an entertaining series and why it's probably going to go maybe not the distance, but going to be another hotly contested uh, long series. Yeah, it was interesting because Mike Babcock got a lot of praise for, I guess, his work in game one, but really they ostensibly just agreed on the matchups they wanted and let it happen. I mean, both of them wanted uh, the big lines to go at each other, Tavares versus Bergeron, and then Matthews and Krejci, and then and Kadri versus either Achari or the, the Charlie, Coyle, uh, Charlie Coyle line. So a lot, of, a lot of praise went to Babcock, and I guess he deserves some credit, I think, putting Muzzin and Zaitsev together. There's obviously the defense was uh, in a little bit of flux going into the series, a lot of injuries, and, and he didn't really know how they were going to match up. But it all worked, and it, and it wasn't because he was getting the right matchup in-game. It just sort of happened that way. So it forced Bruce Cassidy to make the changes, and, and now the Leafs obviously have to make some changes because nothing worked from the, from the Leafs' standpoint uh, Saturday night in Game 2. So... But then it goes back to the Kadri injury or the Kadri suspension, yeah. and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer is there because you could slide William Nylander to the middle, but with the way William Nylander and Patrick Marlowe were rendered completely ineffective tonight, I'm not sure that you can lean on that. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what he comes up with. He needs to come up with something. He will have the benefit of last change this time, but uh, I think this is where the coaching begins for Mike Babcock. He didn't. He didn't deserve probably all the praise he got for game one he's got to earn it now well that's also kind of the curious thing because if you told me um you know heading into game two that the one magic uh quick fix that bruce cassidy was going to do that was going to change the fortunes for the bruins was going to be not to use his best line in patrice bergeron david uh david pasternak and brad marchand against the leafs i guess most dangerous offensive line with marner and and Tavares, and instead use chris wagner's checking line a lot more and we saw right out of right out of the gate from the first uh opening faceoff, and they did really well against them compared to game one when bergeron's unit uh, very surprisingly got caved in to the extent that we rarely ever see them uh, do at five on five. I would have been like, that seems kind of weird because I feel like that plays into, I think the Leafs will be happy with that. And instead it worked out magically for the Bruins. So I'm not sure from Mike Babcock's perspective, heading into game three with the benefit of last change, are you going to be trying to get away from certain matchups? Or are you just going to be rolling those top two lines and maybe rolling them more aggressively? Maybe that's a solution. Uh, you don't even rely on your third line as much as you might have with Kadri in there. And you instead just finally take the chains off and start playing uh, Matthews's line much more than you have before and, and playing Tavares and Marner quite a bit more. I, I don't know what, 
uh, that solution is for Mike Babcock. And I don't know if there is an ideal one necessarily. Yeah, I think it's going to, I mean, it has to come down, I believe, to shortening the bench a little bit. I know you can't do that too much, but uh, when you look at, you don't want to put too much emphasis on what's going on in the fourth lines, but when you have a fourth line in Boston that can take on a first line or be sort of that, that second look that they have to deal with when you maybe go back and forth between Bergeron and, and that fourth line where you're kind of, uh, you're not letting them get settled in a specific matchup. Maybe that's one of the tactics that Bruce Cassidy uses to it is to his advantage. But now I think without Kadri, you'd have to shorten the bench a little bit because you just don't want to rely too much on forwards or the last five forwards, I guess that he has there's it's, it's going to be pretty thin there. And I just don't think the matchups will ever look good. I think, I think Boston's going to be happy with most of what they can get. I mean, Austin Matthews line, really hasn't been that effective. I mean, I thought the Krejci line chewed them up a lot in game one. Uh, they were very fortunate to not get caved in uh, and not get lit up on the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you you got to think, I mean, there's a sleeping giant there with the Bergeron line. If whatever Mike Babcock chooses, how he chooses to handle them, I think he'll try to go back to the Tavares matchup, but uh, that might be just rolling them off the bench more and more because there, there really isn't an alternative to that. So it, it, I, I see Austin Matthews being sort of the key here. I mean, he's got to win his matchup at some point for the Leafs to succeed in this series, and, and the options are a little bit limited now. Yeah, not only win it, but probably win it like decisively, right? Just based on like we when we were previewing this series, we're like, okay, what's going to be different between this year's team and last year's Leafs team? And it's okay, Matthews doesn't have to bear the entire uh, brunt of the responsibility having to play Bergeron's line and still create all the offense. Now they have Tavares in place, and he can help take some of that responsibility and pressure off of him, and maybe buy Matthews some softer minutes against secondary competition. And he's gotten that so far. They just the results haven't really been there. He had one night little rush in in game two where he did a wraparound and it almost looked like it was going to sneak past Rask but beyond that it's been relatively quiet uh, from him and obviously I imagine in front of that home crowd you can only hold him down for so long and he'll eventually break through but they're going to need more but I guess you know the more I think about this and the more I try to wrap my head around this and plan it out um, I think for the Leafs it's not as much about the matchups as it is about controlling the style of play and how the what terms this game is played at beyond just the physicality i think what really stuck out in game one was they sort of like lulled the bruins into this false sense of security where they would trade a couple chances here or there and then all of a sudden uh the floodgates would open up a little bit and they'd get a breakaway or they'd take advantage of the bruins lack of foot speed on the blue line and in game two it felt like the bruins i'm sure that was a big emphasis for them in preparation of it and they did a much better job in terms of keeping everything in front of them and not letting the Leafs uh, stretch them out with all those outlet passes and also just dumping it in and chasing and recovering it. So I guess that's going to be the key in terms of like just who gets to execute their game plan more and what pace this game is played at because the two teams are moving in such opposite directions in terms of what they want to achieve. Yeah, it was interesting in the in game one in the second and third periods, obviously the Bruins I mean, the two goals the Leafs scored basically just broke up waves of attack from Boston. But what was most encouraging from the Leafs' standpoint in that third period is that they were actively defending the lead. I mean, the the events were way down, and they were doing a much much better job controlling the puck and, and staying behind it. And I think that's a lot, like you mentioned, I think that's a lot of what Boston did today. I mean, they, they sort of took away the speed that was really evident for the Leafs in game one, and they just pressured, 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 and, and they dominated the forecheck, and they forced so many mistakes for the Leafs. I mean, the games did start out 
a lot the same. I mean, it was about five minutes of just downhill pressure from the Bruins in each game, but they were able to maintain that a little bit more. And I guess they got out of that that phase a little bit um, in game one when they were obviously chasing the game, but it, it did. It, the Maple Leaf success in that game, well, while they were they were the faster team, I believed in the first period. It was a little bit of a tough second period, but uh, in terms of just the goal scored, um, but they were the team that was that was um, that was controlling the run of play predominantly in that second period, and it stopped in the third period. Now I think what the Bruins did tonight is they they just kept the foot they kept the pedal down, and they were uh, they were just able to stay behind the puck, and they didn't let. Everything, every little detail seemed difficult for the Leafs, like just simple passes, trying to get out of the zone. There's bodies in front of everything, and they just did a really good job staying behind the puck tonight. And I think that's easier, obviously, when you have the lead. And, and the Leafs, opportunistic, I mean, they got to take advantage of that because if they don't get these leads, it makes it far more difficult. No, it does. And, and I think that first period uh, tonight in game two was ultimately sort of like everything you need to know. It told the full story. I think the attempts at 5 on 5 were 21 6 for the Bruins. The shots were 12 5. The two goals were 2 nothing. And, and right out of the gate, I think those first five minutes, you saw exactly what the Bruins want to execute, where they're going to be the most dangerous is sort of kind of doing that like MMA fighter, ground and pound style in the offensive zone where you you eventually just this cumulative effect is going to wear down the opposing team and it's going to lead to mistakes on their breakouts and on their outlet passes and we did see that where the Leafs were making a bunch of careless turnovers and obviously they weren't on force they were from what the Bruins were doing with their forecheck but that that's where the Bruins are the most dangerous when they're controlling the play in the in the five on five attacking zone like that whereas in game one uh the Leafs got so many of those rush chances and I'm going to be very curious because it I think in the second period today, we did see a little bit of that start to happen where they, it was, it's great, uh, in terms of theater and entertainment for us to watch them just trade chances like that. I'd love more of it. But I think from the Bruins, like they need to sense when that's starting and quickly put a, put an end to it because while as alluring as it can be to get a bunch of two on ones and three on twos and odd man rushes, that also means you're playing right into the hands of the Leafs in terms of where they're going to generate most of their offense. So I'm going to be really fascinated to see how that plays out and how the home crowd for the Leafs, uh, affects things because it's clear that, uh, I'm not sure how much of an effect it played, but clearly that Bruins crowd tonight at the TD Garden was rocking from the get-go, and and that fed into that forecheck and everything the Bruins are trying to accomplish. Yeah, there's no doubt it has an impact. I mean, I, I, this is now four four home games that I've been in Boston against the Leafs in the last two years, and the first five minutes play out exactly the same. I mean, just not I wouldn't say uncharacteristics mis- mistakes, but mistakes defensemen shouldn't be making, fumbling pucks, not being able to get out of the zone. It just plays out over and over and over again, and I think a lot of that has to do with the environment. I mean, I, I don't have any other explanation for it. I'm going to be, yeah, so I guess moving forward, like I guess the one uh, massive positive for the Leafs is that even though they lost 4-1 today, uh, Freddie Anderson was amazing again and really kept them in it. It felt like it could have been 6 or 7, uh, nothing at one point before the Leafs even scored their only goal. And, you know, he stopped 74 of 79 in this series. In, in game one, I believe the Bruins had like almost three expected goals scored and they only scored the one and and for as much as we want to make about the Leafs defending and how much better of a job they did in front of him using their speed to to make the Bruins rush a little bit in the offensive zone at the end of the day when Freddie Anderson's playing as well as he played for a lot of the regular season and in these two games he gives them a chance to win regardless and maybe that gives them some more confidence to open it up knowing that he's playing this well behind them yeah it definitely should I mean 
they had a chance to win tonight's game because he was he was brilliant uh, in game two as well, and they probably wouldn't have won the game without superb goal the superb goaltending that he did offer in game one. I mean, there were there were times in that game where it was very tenuous early. There was a barrage in the second period, and he was there uh, to ensure that things didn't get out of hand, and, and things could have got ahead in tonight's game for sure. Uh, but he kept it reasonable and kept him in it until Kadri went uh, rogue on Debrus there. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of heat on Freddie Anderson coming into this series because he just didn't play well for about four to six weeks leading into the postseason. But he's been the rock for several years now, and and uh, he has been able to turn it up when it matters. Uh, game seven, obviously, last year he wasn't able to do that, but um, superb goaltending so far, and they're going to need it um, if they're going to if they're going to finally get over this hump. I guess yeah, we'll, we'll kind of put a put a pin in it here, and we'll, we can pick up this conversation later. But I'm very curious to see what the next uh, wave of storylines or narratives is going to be in this series after Game Three or maybe even Game Four, because obviously, as I said so far, we've had after Game One, the Leafs have figured it out; they finally bought in, they're playing differently. Now, after Game Two, it's kind of much more of the same, and it's very reminiscent of last year, even though the Leafs technically have a sweet have a split in Boston and now go back home, uh, controlling their own fate in front of their home crowd but i'm very curious to see sort of what our next storyline is going to be because it feels like uh you know as our uh as our media brethren does there's a lot of like uh kind of reactionary stuff and maybe overly reactionary after each game as opposed to the regular season when it's such a marathon that we can kind of take our time and cite sample sizes and really be patient with stuff it seems like in the postseason after every single game things completely swerve and, and, and change on a dime depending on who won that game well, you're 100% right. And what's interesting is if you reverse these two games, if this basically what happened to the Leafs in game one last year, happened, which basically happened tonight, happened in game one the other night, and they were able to come back and win game two, there would be so much positivity and, and you know, changes of home ice and the Leafs sort of uh, finally making inroads in, into uh, into the series and, and having a real chance of, uh, of taking it over were there. But now you kind of you have it reversed and you have the same situation happening with Kadri, who's obviously going to be out some games and it feels a lot the same, but it's only going to feel like that until uh, Monday night when the, the, the horn goes on the 60 minutes and we, and we know what's happening in game three. So uh, it's, it's amazing uh, how quickly things can change, but how they can sort of be the same. And, and I'm after game one, I didn't think things would be the same, but things sort of be, are the same as we, as we shift back to Toronto. What do you think, uh, we'll sign off on this, what do you think like the X factor or uh, or key for both teams is beyond, I guess, like the obvious ones of like your best players need to be your best players? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I still I still look to Austin Matthews. I, I mentioned earlier that he, at some point he has to have that impact, but I think it's going to force the Leafs to do a little bit more, and that might be line juggling because Kapanen and Andreas Janssen haven't really been effective on his wings. Maybe it's moving Nylander up and sort of concentrating the talent within that top six a little bit more in an effort to try and take advantage of the matchups that he is at that Babcock is able to create. And then you look at the top line of Boston. I mean, they haven't completely broken out yet. Maybe a David Pasternak going to arrive in a big way at some point in the series because he's, he's feasted and had those big breakout games where he's just, 
he's just unstoppable. So, I mean, that, that sort of leans towards the superstars, but mm-hmm. uh, I think ultimately that's what's going to decide it. Yeah, I think that Bruins top line still has, like, we saw kind of the makings of some of that razzle-dazzle they're known for in Game 2. Pasternak got a couple brilliant passes. One of them led to Marshawn's uh, early goal, but it seems like, yeah, they're going to break through for at least one huge game here, and I guess it'll just be up to the Leafs to sort of uh, limit that because they're eventually going to get theirs. I think, you know, we haven't really talked about the Bruins' defense yet, and obviously Tory Krug took a big hit from Jake Muzzin and didn't come back, and mm-hmm. we're not sure about his status, and Connor Clifton left as well, and this is already a Bruins defensive group that, you know, is missing John Moore, is missing Kevin Miller. They have a bunch of question marks there to begin with, and if this means relying more on Zidane Ochara, I think that's alarming because even though he did play better in Game 2, we saw sort of that lack of foot speed at this stage of his career and how that can be a problem against this Leafs offense and against these Leafs forwards and I think the key for the Leafs is just basically doing more of the same where you just kind of get the puck over their heads you you dump it in or you get it past them and then go chase after it and either they're going to have to take you down and obstruct you or you're going to get uh, some odd man rushes going the other way because they're just not going to be able to go back in time to retrieve it so I really like that interplay there and I think the like a key for the Bruins might honestly be one of these depth defensemen whether it's trusting and playing a guy like Matt Grizzlick more or getting more consistent efforts out of Brandon Carlo because he's one of those guys where if you catch him on the right night he looks amazing and you're like oh this guy's a stud but then if you catch him on another night he looks like he doesn't even belong in the league so uh, depending on what they get from those guys I think assuming that they're not going to be fully healthy on the blue line that's obviously going to go a long way towards the, determining the outcome of how much they can slow down this Leafs offense yeah it's interesting with Chara because clearly the foot speed and it was an issue in game one and I think uh, we talked about the opportunism of the Leafs and, and jumping on them, but I think they made that adjustment for Chara. It was almost like they were playing; they were not c- completely committing on four checks and, and 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 you know investing so much into attack. They were dropping back a little bit more. Maybe the defense wasn't well, and they were sort of uh, they, they were preparing themselves for for the for the counter from the Leafs a little bit better. So. Uh, to have that ability, maybe you're losing you're losing the foot speed a little bit, getting a little bit older, obviously. But the ability to sort of uh, take that into account and prepare for it and change your games, change your style a little bit, and be ready for it. Uh, obviously, I think the Bruins were able to do that a little bit better, which are. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, obviously, I think he played like a career low 21 minutes or something a game this year, and he's can't be relied upon to play the 25, 26 up to 30 minutes that he did once upon a time. But I think assuming they manage those minutes for them, they can still get value out of them. Uh, Justin, plug some stuff. What uh, what are you working on? Because obviously you've been out there in Boston for the first two games and you guys have been cranking out some great con- content. So what can uh, what can people look for or go find while they're waiting for game three? Yeah, it'll be Leafs heavy uh, for me, at least until the Leafs and Bruins are done, uh, because I'll be covering games three and four and maybe a couple more down the stretch uh, in this series. The one bad thing about covering one series and traveling with one series is that you don't get to watch as many other games. I've kind of, uh, I'm kind of out of the loop when it comes to the other teams, and I'm looking forward to watching uh, some other playoff hockey tomorrow night before... Uh, returning to Scotiabank on Monday and I'll have columns and uh, video stuff from games three and four. Well, do your homework because uh, I'll be in town in Toronto from the 23rd to the 25th and you and I will be reunited in studio and I'm, we're going to do some podcasts and the videos, so I'm looking forward to that. Perfect. I can't wait. All right. Chat soon, man. See you, man. And before we get out of here, I thought 
you know, that was only a 20 or so minute conversation with Justin Cuthbert. And I didn't want to leave you guys hanging and shortchange you with just a half dose of the PDO cast. So we're going to round out the episode. I'm going to get my, uh, intrepid longtime producer of the PDO cast, Maddie D to come on and, and discuss some, uh, league wide random topics with me to really kind of help put a bow on the 2018, 19 regular season. And don't worry. We haven't forgotten about the rest of the playoffs and all the different series going on. We're going to do a plenty of deep dive starting next week i think uh as soon as monday afternoon there's going to be another episode coming out to fill those needs so never fear in the meantime um just a reminder that you can help the show out by showing us some love go on apple Podcasts or itunes and leave us a five-star rating and review and go check out the show on spotify and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes i've heard from some people that they haven't been getting new episodes loading into their feed and i think there was some shenanigans going on when the pdo cast switch feeds uh to the yahoo one and so i think it's as simple as just you need to unsubscribe and resubscribe and everything should go smoothly from there with that said uh i'm going to welcome uh my producer matt as i said to the show i think this is your first time coming on you've you you you've kind of left some notes here and there in terms of uh in in post editing when we've kind of needed you to jump in but otherwise i don't think you've actually had a a voice on the show so i'm excited to finally get you on matt yeah it's uh it's nice to finally be on i think uh long-time listeners will probably recognize my voice uh popping up here or there once in a blue moon but this is the first time i'm actually on the show proper yeah well, obviously, I want to. I mean, you and I chat about hockey all the time, off the air and off the record. But I also wanted to get you on because I, I truly do admire the people who release like solo podcasts where they're just talking to themselves into their microphone for an hour straight without any feedback or any sort of dialogue. But I unfortunately find that incredibly weird. I struggle enough doing the uh, two minute ad reads as is. So I needed to get you on so we can turn this into a bit more of a conversation as opposed to me just kind of talking to myself and lecturing listeners. So we're going to do in this order, we're going to do the awards. I don't have a actual ballot, so I can do a bit of a hypothetical fake ballot if I did have awards in terms of who I think is deserving. We're going to do the draft lottery, quick takeaways, since we haven't really done a show since then. And we're going to do some reaction to the news that Joel Quenville was hired by the Panthers. So a lot of this stuff is... um I guess kind of random, especially with uh, with the playoffs going on in the background. But uh, as I said, we'll get back to regular scheduled programming. And we're going to try to have a little bit of fun with this. So let's. Uh, I'll leave the floor to you, Matt, to uh, kind of moderate this. Where do you want to start with the awards? Uh, well, let's start with the big one. Let's start with the heart. Who do you have for the heart? All oh, right, starting starting with the big guns right out of the gate. I like it. Um, so this is an interesting award to me as I pull up my list because. There is obviously that discussion which we had last year and is continuing in terms of sort of the letter of the law here and how we feel about whether, you know, how much we should be attributing team success to this award and whether a player not making the postseason should ultimately affect his candidacy. And obviously that is largely um, tied up in Connor McDavid's case here and the discussion there. And I don't have him winning the award this year. I think there's obviously a very... Uh, realistic argument to make that he was just by the letter of the law the most valuable player to his team because they were an absolute disaster with him off the ice and when he was on there they were one of the better teams in the league and so by default you can make the argument that he was the most valuable player i think obviously this is a special occasion with what nikita kucherov did this year and we'll get into that in a second but also i think and i know they played together and mcdavid is certainly uh 
partly responsible for Leon Dreisaitl's success, but I feel like there were enough occasions where Dreisaitl did enough on his own to at least give him a bit of a running mate, so it's not like last year where it was really just a complete solo effort. So you put all of that together, and I have McDavid as third on my list. I have Sidney Crosby second, and we're going to talk about him more when we get to the Selkie, but his... Uh, throwback season this year was really just a vintage Sidney Crosby season. He was healthy for pretty much all of it. Uh, he was doing classic Sidney Crosby things in terms of regardless of who you put on his wings, they were instantly performing like rock stars and they were just absolutely killing it and having uh, career nights and there was a rotating cast there, but it ultimately didn't matter because he's Sidney Crosby and he makes everyone good and the on-ice, off-ice results for him in terms of how responsible he was for um, both in terms of shot share, but also goal met- goal metrics, driving, the success of the Penguins at 5-on-5, I ultimately thought that just made him such an intriguing candidate here from a from an MVP perspective. But ultimately, it begins and ends with Kucherov, and I know now there's a bit of a sour taste in people's mouths considering the Lightning are down 2-0, and he got suspended for Game 3, and the season's kind of going off the rails completely unexpectedly here, but we need to remember this is a regular season award, and when I think... I know, it's a crazy rule here. I don't know if you agree with Matt, but I think if a player has 128 points, I think there's a, I, I think he's very deserving of uh, of this MVP award here, and we haven't seen it since the mid 90s when Yarmar Yager and Mario Lemieux were terrorizing the league. And so, I think ultimately, I get the argument that the Lightning were so loaded and had so many different contributors that. You know, if you take Kucherov away from that, they still probably would have been pretty good and would have had a decent offense just because of all the other names around there. But he was such an integral part to that. This is to the team's success offensively in terms of running the power play through him and how, you know, he helped Braden Point reach this next level offensively and have a career season that's going to get him paid very handsomely this summer and taking the pressure off of Stamkos and some of the other guys. So I just think it was a special season. I know goal scoring is up around the league and this really could be, um, you know, a new era where we're going to see crazy gaudy point totals, but I also wouldn't be surprised if next year we go back to something resembling closer to guys having in the low hundreds and we look at this as just, you know, a historical footnote or an aberration of a guy just having an absolutely absurd season that's going to go down in the record book. So the 128 points and the team success and everything that went into that, I think makes Kucherov a very deserving Hart Trophy winner. Yeah, for sure. I don't think, um, I I think that's a, a pretty solid case for him. I mean, the only person who's even come close to putting up points at that number was uh, Sidney Crosby in the year that he um, got his serious concussions and missed right, half the on, season. On a per-game basis. Yeah, 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 he was on pace for about 130 points, but nobody else has done it since 96, so it's pretty remarkable. Well, um, the thing is, well, just one more point on my... On my like I, I'm, I'm, it feels really unfair to McDavid because it feels like if there was just like a certain baseline level of competency around him... I don't know if it would be a no-brainer for him here, but if the Oilers were a good playoff team, it'd be interesting to see how much the discourse would change because, I mean, you just look and he had a primary point where he was directly impacting the result of the goal on well north of 40% of their goals, which is unheard of, I think, going back to 2007 when we have a lot of... Uh, a lot deeper information on that the database. Um, no one's really done that. And, you know, we thought last year he kind of set a high watermark for him, and then this year he just you know, went to another level. And so regardless of the fact that the season didn't go the way they wanted and they were the brunt of a lot of jokes, what McDavid did this year was remarkable. And I think in some way should be, um, 
you know, should be denoted. I, I wonder, you know, he won the, I guess, voted by the players at Ted Lindsay last year in terms of what's generally considered to be like the most outstanding player. And sometimes there's some conflation between these two and, you know, difficulty in figuring out how to weigh those. I wonder this year whether he'll ultimately win that again or whether Kucherov's uh, point totals are going to be so ridiculous and just so unheard of that the players will nominate him to be the uh, Ted Lindsay winner, winner as well. So I've got uh, two questions mm-hmm. on the Hart Trophy before we move on uh, to the next one. Um, do the professional hockey writers, do they cast their ballots before the playoffs start? Or do they that's cast a, them later? That's a great question. I feel like I should know the answer to that. I think you are supposed to. And if you don't actually physically cast it by then, I, I, I'm. it's a regular season award. So I think yeah, regard, like the first couple of games of the postseason should um, should not influence your opinion because that's not what we're ultimately deciding upon here. But you're right. I think if you haven't actually physically cast your vote, like it's kind of impossible to, um, shake that sort of feeling that the, the, even if it's like an unintentional bias, I'm sure it's going to be weighing on your mind just based on how surprising the start of this postseason has been. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, the lightning could win the next four games and Kucherov could score 16 points in the three games. He's back for the series too. Right. So absolutely. Who knows and- what's going to happen. And it's also not like, you know, obviously McDavid's not playing this postseason. The yeah. other guy I mentioned, Crosby, has had a very uncharacteristically subpar for his two games versus the Islanders as well. And, you know, I'm going to talk about that more next week, but they've done a great job of flanking him and sort of dictating the uh, on-ice matchups with last change and home ice advantage. And so it's not like he's necessarily just kind of blown us away either. So I think ultimately... um we should just kind of focus on the regular season here by the letter of the law. And, and in that case, I have it Kucherov, Crosby, McDavid, one, two, three, and it, it's a great class. I mean, you could really make a very strong argument for any of those three guys. Do you have a sense um, of who the award is? You don't have a ballot. So <laughs> um, who, who do you have a sense might uh, actually get the award? Do you, if you have a well, sense, that's also a good uh, distinction. I guess I should have prefaced this entire conversation. These are, these are, we're ultimately talking about things that I think, like if I had an, uh, a ballot that I would vote and I'm not saying I'm not trying to predict what the actual results are going to be. Um, but in this case, I do think Kucherov is going to take the award. I mean, we already saw last year that there were enough uh voters who were sort of queasy about the idea of giving McDavid the award for not making the postseason. And I think he's going to lose some because of that. And I don't think there's anyone else that had uh, such an undeniable case that they're going to jump in and swoop in and overtake Kucherov. And I think a common theme here that we're going to see is, you know, this season the Lightning had was just so uh, remarkably dominant with their 62 wins and 128 points. And I think that's going to be reflected in these awards. And I don't necessarily have an issue with that because I, the point I make time and time again, is I treat these awards ballots, like sort of the, you know, historical time capsule where they should really reflect what the season was all about and who the most impactful players were. And when we look back at it, five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're going to look back at this 2018, 19 lightning team with admiration and awe, just based on the, on the totals they put together. And how obviously it might wind up being with an asterisk and a cautionary tale of sorts. If they fall short, kind of like the 29, 2009, uh, 2010 Washington Capitals did when they got upset in the first round. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to the Norris. Um, mm-hmm. this is Giordano's award to lose. Who do you, who do you have for the Norris? Yeah, I think it's pretty clearly Mark Giordano and, he kind of checks all the boxes. I know we like to joke about how the Norris Trophy is 
sort of uh, a narrative award in terms of it's like we kind of want all these great defensemen to have at least one and it started with the Drew Doughty thing and then you know Brent Burns and so on and so on where every, it feels like kind of, it's kind of like a participation award where every great defenseman should have one and we should recognize what they've done in the league and it feels like this year Mark Giordano certainly checks that because he's come close before I think he has a couple top 10 finishes and he's fallen short and he really put it all together and at the age of of 35 I believe for him to have a career season like this is relatively unheard of but then there's also the element that it's very well deserved in this case the on ice results for him uh, were amazingly positive for the Flames you know he was a key member of a team that surprised and wound up winning the western conference and the and the one seed and i think there's also the element that you know for a couple of years there we there especially from an analytical perspective we all thought very highly of dougie hamilton and we were wondering how much of giordano's success was attributed to playing with an elite partner like that and you know you strip dougie hamilton away from the situation you put tj brody back there you put even some young guys on occasion like rasmus anderson and Giordano didn't miss a beat. In fact, he took his game to a next level, and that's the mark of a true leader and a great player. And so I think for that, he's the clear number one runaway choice here. In terms of afterwards, I really wanted to put Chris Letang and Eric Carlson on this list because I think they were probably the second and third most impactful defensemen on a per-game basis. But they both missed like 20, 25, almost 30 games, I think. So I had a really difficult time... um, awarding them here just because it's unfortunate it's not necessarily their fault they missed that much time but this is a regular season award and if the guy misses that significant of a portion that's pretty detrimental to their team so i had them as honorable mentions i have morgan riley and john carlson as two three here with brent burns just narrowly missing the cut oh you're gonna antagonize some of the anti-leafs crowd with uh morgan riley at number two I mean, I believe I'm. I'm not sure as of most recently, but for a large chunk of the season, he was number one on evolving Wilds goals above replacement, and he's I been amazing he, this year. He led all defensemen in five on five scoring. Um, I understand the concerns and and sort of the flaws and how he sometimes doesn't look like your prototypical number one defenseman. Well, but been dragging Ron Hainsey around. Well, <laughs> and cor- that's the, the thing. I mean, Ron Hainsey. No, that's a great point. I think this is something that. You know, throughout his career has plagued them. I, I remember when they traded for Jake Muzzin, I looked up and I, I tweeted out the list of all the defensive partners he's played regularly with, and it's truly a remarkably stunning list of guys who pretty much instantly after they stopped playing with him were out of the league or, you know, were sent back down to the AHL and so on and so forth. So when he's played with Muzzin this year, when he's played with Jay Gardner, it's now no surprise that his five on five numbers and all of his shot metrics have skyrocketed. And it's obviously, you know, at this point in his career, Ron Hainsey, unfortunately, has only so much to give and drags him down a little bit. And the fact that he still had the year he had playing with who he did is is a testament to his skill. So I think I understand there's going to be pushback because of the Leafs, anti-Leafs crowd. But trust me, there's no East Coast bias here. I think Morgan Riley earned this uh, vote, of, vote of confidence. All right. And sorry, who did you have as uh, your number three again? I deliberated long and hard between John Carlson and Brent Burns. And I think there's a case to be made that, you know, Burns deserves to be on this top three ballot. I think maybe I'm falling victim a little bit here to sort of uh, not necessarily recency bias, but kind of, I guess, that like expectation bias where I was so pleasantly surprised by the year John Carlson had because I was a 
you know, I was I was an advocate that they should just let him walk this summer and not pay him for everything he'd done because I thought it was a bad bet. And he really took his game to another level. And they're going to need him if they're going to continue in this postseason uh, without Michael Kepney around to really keep playing at that very, very high level. And so I think I was very, very pleasantly surprised with the year he had. And I think he's on this list as the third guy. All righty. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to the Vesna. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... Uh, most of the season, people were saying it was Vasilevsky by walk, but um, Ben Bishop made a bit of a late season case. So who do you have for the Vesna? Yeah, this is a tough one because I I ultimately have Ben Bishop winning this just because I think his numbers were so remarkably dominant that it's really tough to overlook. Part of the nagging thing in the back of my mind was his backup in Anton Hudobin not, not only nearly started the same number of games, but was not quite as good, but was still a top 10 goalie by pretty much every metric. And so when you look at that, similar to Robin Leonard and Thomas Grice, on the one hand, you don't want to take away from their individual success, but on the other hand, you can't help but think that it was kind of a systems-driven thing um, by whatever their coaching staff and their defense was doing in front of them. At the same time, Bishop was first amongst goalies and goals saved above average. He was first in save percentage with just an absolutely absurd 934 this year. Um, he was fourth in goals above replacement and fourth in 5-on-5 save percentage. And ultimately, I think that's enough. And he really was the backbone of that Stars team that didn't have much else going on in front of him. So I have Bishop as number one. I have Vasilevsky as two. And then I have, um, I have Darcy Kemper three which is obviously very surprising uh go back and listen to kevin and woodley and i talk about him at length a couple podcasts ago but even though they fell short of the postseason just what he did uh in his games down the stretch was just uh you know remarkable and completely unexpected and i'm I'm, i don't think he's going to replicate it next year or any time in the future but this is sort of a descriptive award for what happened this regular season and i think he was one of the uh, most impactful goalies and just missing the cut were john gibson and freddie anderson all right uh Calder. This will probably be a short conversation too. Uh, Jordan Bennington, did he do enough? No, no, he didn't. His 30 games were great. Um, and it's clear that he was a big part of that Blues turnaround, which was a, a, an amazing turnaround. They were last in the league, as everyone's heard at this point, and they wound up making a run getting uh potentially they had a chance there to actually win the central which was remarkable all things considered they fell a bit short but they're looking good this postseason and i think just the fact that he's not jake allen means so much for them but this is if you're talking about this is a historical time capsule elias Pettersson coming into the league and single-handedly almost changing just the way we look about and talk about this canucks franchise where people are tuning into their games where people nationally are talking about them and, and it seemed just kind of giving them hope we talk about the nhl as being a team sport or team uh, uh, hockey being a team sport and the nhl being completely different than a, than a league like the nba for example because one guy can only do so much but just look at how people are talking about and viewing the canucks and their future outlook last year at this time compared to right now and it's night and day and that starts and ends with Pedersen. and i know the critics will say that he kind of fell off as the year went along and his point totals dipped but he still ended the year with uh, such a high uh, percentage contribution share for the Canucks offense as a whole and historically looking great on a on a per game basis for rookies over the past however many decades so I think Pedersen very clearly is the number one here Bennington number two and I think Rasmus Dahlin I know kind of flew under the radar a little bit uh, which is weird to say about a first overall pick but the Sabres were such a disaster in the second half of the season but he was i think i saw the stat that he was the first um 18 year old defenseman to ever play all 82 games finished the year with 
44 points, played over 21 minutes a night, um, had great underlying numbers. And as the year went along, he started kind of eating away some of the minutes that they'd been giving to Rasmus Ristolainen for all these years. And I'm being very fascinated to see with this new coach, um, you know, if Ristolainen's even there after this summer, maybe they might trade him. But even if he's around, whether that new coaching staff is going to do a better job of just feeding Dalian all of those first power play and all of those top uh, five on five minutes, because he showed already which is remarkable to say about a player of his age that he's their best defenseman and he should be getting those minutes. So uh, a quick follow-up question on this mm-hmm. one. Um, you, the past couple seasons, you have had the Canucks ranked bottom three, I think in your watchability rankings at the start of every season. How much does Pedersen by himself lift the Canucks on your list? I mean, I'd have to really think about it. And we're going to do it again at the start of next season and I'll have a more definitive answer for you there. But I mean, just single-handedly, I'd say he bumps them at least up like five spots, right? Like yeah. on a bare minimum. And then when you add in Quinn Hughes and how good he looked in his last couple games, um, there's a case to be made that Canucks are going to be like in the top 20, which uh, I haven't been able to say in quite some time. So at least they have that to look forward to. Yeah, they won't be completely unwatchable going no. forward at least, which is which is a plus after the past couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Selkie. Who do you have for the Selkie? So Selkie, I have Crosby here at number one, um, and I kind of laid out the case for him when we were talking about the heart, so I won't rehash that. I think it's a pretty clear one, two, three here in some order with him, Mark Stone, and Ryan O'Reilly. I love the effect Ryan O'Reilly had this year on that Blues team, and he was not only as good as advertised, but I think even better. Uh, we're talking, we'll talk a bit in the, uh, when we get to the Bing about how the, he doesn't take any penalties, which is really amazing considering the minutes he plays and who he plays against. Uh, he kind of helped carry that line, and he had such a an immediate chemistry with Vlad Tarasenko in terms of serving as a playmaker that could just retrieve the puck and get it to him in scoring regions and so i love ryan o'reilly here if you want to have him at number one i'm perfectly okay with that and if you want to have mark stone winning this award i would love that you can't have a winger winning this award i would love to see it because we need to change that (laughs) we need to change the discussion it is open to all forwards it is not just for centers and mark stone is that damn good i'd normally agree with you i'd say for a winger to exceed a center here, he would really need to be head and shoulders better. But I think that is just how good Mark Stone is. And I'm not even talking about that lazy uh, takeaway stat that people always like the site. You just watch that guy and what he's capable of on the ice. And I'm glad that now playing in the playoffs for this Vegas team, more people from a national perspective are noticing and cluing in because he was kind of this hidden gem for a long time at Ottawa. But he's just he's just such a, an amazing game changing five on five talent that I think you have to have him in this in this ballot somewhere. And and Crosby's your number one. I do have Crosby. I get it. He doesn't really kill many penalties for them, and understandably considering all the other uh, responsibility he has to shoulder. So if you want to bump him down a little bit here, I'm okay with that. I think it would be kind of cool because it's the only award, really, that he's never won. And so it kind of, you know, from a historical perspective, um, adds a certain element to that as well. And it's kind of a neat story. So I kind of like that, but ultimately any of these three guys I'm cool with. And I know Flyers fans are going to get on my case about not having Sean Couturier and, and so on and so forth. But I really do think those are the top three guys. All right. Uh, well, you just mentioned it. So why don't we do the uh, lady Bing? Oh, an, an amazingly impactful award. It definitely uh, means a lot. Um, no, I, I, Listen, I, I like the the fact that over time people have embraced that low penalty minute totals are 
perfectly fine and actually a net positive because it generally means a guy is not putting his team down a man and being in the box all the time and it's not some sort of indictment against them for playing soft and not mixing it up in the corners um i have satchel barkov winning this the fact that he only took three penalties and drew 29 at five on five this year is, is truly preposterous considering especially how many minutes he was playing i have ryan o'reilly for a similar reason um second here and then i have sam gerard third i know he's kind of thought of as uh, an offensive defenseman but you know we always talk about speed from an offensive perspective in terms of what you what type of offense and scoring chances you can generate with it i think we saw with guys like him and, and nate schmidt and devon taves this year that being a good skater can also help in a defensive zone because you aren't having to hook and hold and take guys down and drop penal- and take penalties just because you're constantly chasing the game so you can use it to cover ground more quickly and make up for any mistakes anyone else around you make so i love defensemen who can skate and don't take penalties um i have nate schmidt as an honorable mention and i'm gonna give some love to matthew shane here who took zero penalties in 1100 five on five minutes this year which is uh, quite an accomplishment that's amazing yeah um all right let's power through these last couple we got the jack adams mm-hmm I mean, I think it comes down to Barry Trutz or Barry Trutz, uh, Barry Trotz or John Cooper, and it's sort of this argument of how much credit you want to give John Cooper for the success of the Lightning, considering all the players they had. I think the fact that they went from good to historically great this season isn't something we should take lightly and just dismiss. And I think that's a very important uh, piece of contextual information. I think Barry Trotz is my winner here, just because of. You can sort of point to the 2017-18 Islanders and the 2018-19 Islanders and sort of directly um, delineate like when he came in and what the impact his system he had on that team. And obviously the goaltenders making saves helps a lot. But I think at the end of the day, it's kind of that trot system we've heard about time and time again. And all of his stops kind of paid fruition again for this Islanders team and really changed that organization and their outlook. And so I have him at number one, Cooper at number two. And then I couldn't decide. I have, you know, Bay, Peters, Brindamore, Tockett at number three. You can pick any of those guys. All of them had amazing seasons and all their teams exceeded expectations. And so whichever one you want to give love to, I'm perfectly cool with. Yeah. And I think, I don't know that enough has been made of that Islanders team. Um, I think they're one of only five teams that have had a swing of a hundred uh, goals uh, in a year yeah. against. They went from leading the league with uh, 296 goals against last year to uh, leading the league with 196 goals against in the opposite direction this year, and with basically the same defensive group and switching out Yarrow Halak for Robin Leonard, who you know traditionally those are pretty similar goalies across their career. So it's it's pretty incredible to do it with very similar team. Well, and if you look at the rest of the league, it's like kind of zigging when everyone's zagging, right? Like yeah. the offense around the league went up this year and everyone's scoring goals and goaltenders say percentage is down and everyone's talking about how it's a new NHL and for the Islanders to make the change they did in that time from one year to the next without really adding any sort of game changing defensive players um, really speaks to the to the job both Trotz and uh, his goalie coach Mitch Korn did. All right, last of the awards here. Uh, GM of the year. The only one without a fancy name. So i don't know what to do with this one because it's clear that like the lightning uh just based on the team they constructed and sort of their sustainability or longevity past this season because i don't think they're going to necessarily fall off moving forward probably deserves love here but obviously they changed gms 
uh, at the start of the season. So it's kind of weird to give it to Steve Eiserman considering he's not their GM anymore. But I guess if you kind of just like give it to him and Julian Breesbaugh and let them both go up on the podium and hold the award together, considering Eiserman still is with the organization, I'm perfectly cool with that. All right. Uh, so shall we move on? Talk about the uh, draft lottery now. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I don't necessarily have too much to say because I haven't really done um, a lot of my draft prep. So like, yeah, everyone knows that Jack Hughes and Capococco are really good and are going to go one, two in some order. And then the draft kind of opens up after that. And we're going to have so much time to really dive into that on the PDO cast in June. But my two quick takeaways were I was happy uh, as an unbiased observer to see the Devils and the Rangers get the top two for different reasons, but both were kind of um, karmically rewarded. Like I hate this idea that teams uh, shouldn't tank or shouldn't try to rebuild organically through the draft because it's no guarantee. You look at the Buffalo Sabres, you look at the Edmonton Oilers, they've had so many top picks and still have nothing to show for it. And it's just such a flawed argument because it means you're completely ignoring the lightning, the Blackhawks, the Penguins, all these teams that had top five picks for a couple years in a row. And all of a sudden use those cornerstone franchise players to build around and so and, and the massive mistakes that the oilers and the sabers have made over the past decade as well it's like yeah they got high picks but they completely crapped the bed in every other respect of running their teams well absolutely and it's like i think there's a distinction to be made like getting these top picks doesn't assure you that your directions your franchise is all of a sudden gonna become incredibly successful and competitive and be vying for stanley cups but it feels like as a baseline requirement, you need to at least have a couple of these picks just to have a chance and just kind of as a cover charge to get into the playoff door, right? And so with the Devils, um, they get the first pick again for the second time in three years. And I really like Nico Hischier. I think I know people don't necessarily think of him as sort of this transcendent generational number one center that you should be getting with the first overall pick, but and he's clearly a tier below, but he does so much well and he's still so young, I, I think, the world of him. And so adding Jack Hughes all of a sudden is huge because it really helps you have those top two centers bumps Travis Sajak potentially down to a third line center role, which is skill sets more suited for. And hopefully you can convince Taylor Hall, assuming you want to keep him long-term to stay past next year to re-sign long-term and end his career with the devils. And finally you, you have these offensive pieces in place to actually be good and relevant again. And for the Rangers, they're kind of karmically rewarded because they have this clear defined coherent rebuild. They wrote that letter to the fan base They've made no bones about what they're trying to accomplish. The past two years, they've sold off pretty much all of their aging players. They've loaded up on picks. I mean, if you look at it, they had three firsts last year. They had two year, two the year before. They have potentially up to four this year based on how the playoff results turn out. They've had 10 picks in each of the past two drafts. So I really love what they're doing there. I know the pushback from people is, well, it doesn't matter how many picks you have. It matters what you do with them. But having more volume here, just like a lottery ticket, gives you a better chance at hitting home runs in the draft and getting useful contributors from the draft. So I love what the Rangers are doing, and I hope they're rewarded for it because hopefully it'll put this stupid argument to rest and potentially get more teams to embrace it moving forward. Uh do you ha- do you uh, have a sense of any teams uh, likely to make moves up and down now that we know where they're where they're sitting? I mean, it feels like most of the teams picking at the top of the draft um, are going to be content making their pick just because they really need that player. Like, I guess the one team that is interesting here to keep an eye on are the Colorado Avalanche potentially because they obviously have the fourth overall pick from the Ottawa Senators and. 
I think they were hoping that would potentially be the first overall pick. So it's a bit of a bummer for them. But at the same time, you know, they're going to have their own first. They're going to have this fourth overall pick. And they're already a playoff team that has a bunch of great young players to build around. And Kale McCarr is coming as well as potentially this postseason. And he'll be on the team full time next year. And so you have the infrastructure already in place. And if there's an opportunity where you can cash in one or both of those first round picks to get some sort of player that is currently still in his prime or about to enter it that some team is willing to give away for whatever reason for future draft capital. I think that's a very intriguing uh, possibility for Joe Sackick and the Avalanche to explore because it's pretty clear that they view themselves as ready to win and compete right now. And based on the performance this year and the past couple of years, there's no reason to believe that a Nathan McKinnon can't be feisty come the postseason. Alrighty. Shall we, uh, shall we move on from the draft? Yeah, let's. The one final thing we wanted to touch on were the uh, the Panthers here, right? Higher yes. than Joel Quenville. Yes, Joel Quenville uh, to Florida. Second winningest coach in NHL history, now in Florida. Second winningest coach, first winningest mustache. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I mean, um, uh, Paul. Um, oh, um, uh, former Ottawa coach, uh, Paul. McLean. McLean. Yes, uh, I guess he's not in the NHL at the moment. I don't think he's not an assistant anywhere, is he? Um, he was an assistant with, um, with Randy Carlisle for a while in Anaheim. I'm not sure if he was retained or or what's going on, but he might give Quinville, he might give Quinville a run for the best mustache award, but not for the most winning coach. No. Yeah. Best. Yeah. Best Waller's mustache. Yeah, that's for sure. No. Um, so Quinville's interesting here because obviously I think any team would have loved to bring him in as their coach. I think there, I don't know how many openings there are seven or eight teams at least that need a new coach, but I think there's at least another 10 to 15 teams that would probably be happy to replace their current coach with Joel Quenville just based on his track record and deservedly so all the work he's done over the years. And, you know, it's really tough evaluating these coaches in terms of separating the talent they have from the job they do. But it's clear that Quenville might not necessarily be like the youngest, most progressive mind, but for a guy who's been in the game for as long as he has and commands as much authority as he does, it's clear that he's at least willing to think about the game from different perspectives and at least, you know, listen to some new ideas and having that combination is very ideal in today's NHL. And he comes into a Florida situation where I know they keep disappointing and falling short of expectations and that's why they needed a new coach, but Look at it. You got Sasha Barkov, Jonathan Huberto, and Vincent Trocek all locked up long term on really nice team friendly deals. You have uh, Henrik Borgstrom coming up as a potential third line center slash, you know, second line winger if you want to bump one of those guys to the wing that I think is going to be an impact game changing type of player. You have Frank Vetrano's emergence. You have Mike Hoffman and Evgeny Dadanov, who I believe have one year left on their deal and are like awesome top six wingers that you could either dangle out there for future trades or just keep on your team and have a stacked offense up front and then i think the most important development for them is that aaron ekblad looked like the first you know the top pick um and the guy that he was advertised as after a couple down seasons he bumped back up he had the eighth best uh, goals above replacement for any defenseman and looked like that top defenseman that they were hoping he'd be so there's a lot of pieces there in place and i know there's depth questions i know there's goalie questions and we're going to talk more about luongo here in a second but Quinville, I can see why it would be a tantalizing spot for him to come into because, you know, pulling a few little strings here and there, 
hitting home runs in the summer with how they spend their money in free agency. And all of a sudden, this could be a team that all of a sudden could see a massive boost in, in production and results next season. And you have to think that uh, Quenville being there, I mean, Florida has made no uh, bones about wanting to make a big splash in free agency mm-hmm. this summer. You have to think that Quenville's uh, being down there, you know, they, they're going to go hard after Artemi Panarin and, you know, he and, he and Quenville have a history, so... They do, and Bobrovsky as well, right? So you look at, uh, he doesn't have a history with Joel Quenville necessarily, but in terms of being teammates and sort of this rumored package of guys coming from Columbus to Florida this summer, you're right, all of a sudden adding those two guys, especially Panarin, would be game changers. And and Quenville's shown that he can handle and coach and get the most out of awesome young superstars, as he did during his time in Chicago. And so... I, I like that fit here. I think um, it was a no-brainer and the fact that he chose them and the fact that the Panthers showed that they're willing to spend top dollar here um, is a really fascinating indicator of potential things to come for the franchise. All right, so do we want to discuss uh, the future of Roberto Luongo in Florida? Well, let's talk about it. I mean, so this yeah. year they were 30th as a team and this isn't just Luongo, obviously. Um, Reimer had a rough time Reimer too. struggled as well, yeah. So I think they were 30th and 5 on 5 and overall save percentage this year. I think there's only the Sharks were worse. And when you look at it, I mean, having nearly $8 million committed to those two guys um, for next season and the year uh, after that, at least, is a tough pill to swallow considering that performance and the fact that there's no real reason to expect it's going to get better. And so I know that you... Um, I don't know if it was necessarily your debut appearance. I think you've written before, but at at Canucks Army, you wrote this great piece that I recommend people go Google and check out in terms of sort of the potential options um, for Roberto Luongo's future, especially as it relates to the Canucks and sort of the cap ramifications because of the recapture tax that they're potentially facing based on when he retires. And so I don't know, do you want to lay out some of those potential scenarios and sort of how it may impact both the Canucks, Panthers and Roberto Luongo himself? Sure. So, I mean, the big, you know, everybody just says, well, long-term injury reserve doesn't matter, which is fair. We haven't seen any player on one of these long-term backdiving contracts that was signed before the last lockout actually retire. Every single one of them um, has gone on long-term injury reserve with the exception of Brad Richards, who was bought out. Um, and I think Le Cavalier was bought out as well. So um, everybody else has ended up being put on long-term injury reserve, which... Um, you know, is is mostly good. Mostly clears them off the books for the team. The team has to be cap compliant at the start of the season um, before the player is placed on injured reserve. Um, but then goes on injury reserve. They typically are paid out by insurance because they're considered an injured player that doesn't actually have to pay them real dollars from the team. And they just you know they go off to an island somewhere and and don't play and and everything is fine. That's Ro- prob- Robida Island, right? Robida Island, exactly. Yes, Steve Dangle coined the term Robida Island, which is a wonderful term. Um, so probably that's what's going to happen with Roberto Luongo at some point, but it might not. And there are some really interesting scenarios uh, that could go down if that doesn't happen. So if Luongo retires out, you know, Luongo had his first season below 900 save percentage in his entire career this past year. It was the first year, I think, even below league average save percentage. Um, so it was a huge drop off for him. I think he was like a 928 or a 922 or something the season before, an 897 mm-hmm. this year. Um, so he he might be done. Um, he might bounce back. He, I mean, he's an unusual player, so it's hard to say. Um, but if he is done this year, there's a small cap recap and he actually retires. Doesn't go on longer term injury reserve straight up says I'm done. I retire. 
In the 2012-2013 CBA, um, there is a penalty for these backdiving contracts that were signed in the previous CBA. Um, so by the terms of that CBA, uh, Luongo's would, would um, for the remainder of his contract, still count against the cap of both the Canucks and the Florida Panthers. For the Vancouver Canucks, they're looking at a $2.8 million cap hit for the three remaining years of the contract. Um, and for the Florida Panthers, they are looking at about a $1 million cap hit for the remainder of the contract. So it's not a huge deal for either team. Both teams would be able to work around that. Um, where it really starts to get problematic is, you know, Luongo has said he wants to come back as backup um, this coming season. So if Luongo is back as backup in Florida and retires after next year, um, that cap hit for the Florida Panthers goes down to zero. So they have no real incentive to put him on long-term injury reserve because if he just retires, they don't owe him anything. Um, whereas if he goes on injured reserve, they have to continue to pay his, you know, $1.5 million real salary or whatever, however mm-hmm. much it is. Um, or their insurance company has to pay it, which the insurance company might not, uh, not be thrilled about. Mm-hmm. But for the Canucks, their uh, cap penalty goes up to about four and a half million dollars in that scenario for the next two years. So that starts to get significant. If he retires in the final year of his contract, again, it's zero for Florida. It's eight million dollars for the Canucks for that one season. Uh, so, you know, potentially disastrous since they're going to be looking at um, new contracts for Besser, for Pedersen at that time, potentially for Hughes. You know, a lot of these young players, um, you know, they're going to be wanting to enter their window to win with those players being in sort of the 21 to 25 range. And, um, you know, you don't want eight, $8 million just uh, sitting on the books there. Hmm. Um, so potential serious problem. Now, it also, <laughs> there's an additional wrinkle. Um, and this is what I discussed in the... Um, Canucks Army article is some creative things that the Canucks can do to address this problem because obviously that's a nightmare scenario. They need to do everything they can to avoid it. They can't just sit back and assume that the Florida Panthers are going to put him on long-term injury reserve because there's not really any um, advantage for the Panthers in doing that. There's no incentive for them to do it. It doesn't save them any real money. It doesn't save them any salary cap money. Um, They can just let him retire whenever he wants. Um, So the Canucks would want to see either bring the contract back and put Luongo on long-term injury reserve themselves, um, you know, give up an asset to Florida to return the contract to Vancouver um, or, you know, trade it to another team that needs to hit the cap floor. We've seen that happen a few times with guys like uh, Pavel Datsuk Um, or they can sue the league, (laughs) which I think Mm. is uh, unlikely, but um, there's a general presumption. I, I, sh- I should, uh, for people who don't know me, uh, which would be most listeners, um, I am a, a lawyer in British Columbia. Um, I'm not a lawyer in New York, which is the um, jurisdiction where the, uh, the CBA is negotiated. Um, so I'm just going to talk about some general principles. Um, but, uh, you know, the actual um, details can vary on a bunch of different uh, technicalities. But um, in principle... In common law jurisdictions like Canada and the United States, uh, retroactivity is really frowned upon. And what that means is you don't want to put a law in place, for example, that says uh, we're going to throw you in jail for something you did five years ago that was legal at the time. Mm-hmm. And and this applies to a lot of other areas as well, including contracts. Generally, if you enter a contract, it's presumed to be only forward-looking and not backward-looking. So it's presumed that... Um, 
if you say there's a penalty for doing something, for example, entering into a backdiving contract, that applies to contracts going forward, but it doesn't apply retroactively. Um, now, there is a clause in the 2012-2013 CBA that says that this uh, penalty for backdiving contracts does apply to contracts signed under the previous CBA, but um, the Canucks might have an argument that it ought not to apply um, for some complicated reasons that <laughs> we don't well, necessarily need a, to get into. I have a now, question but, for you from a yeah. layman's perspective, which sure. I'm sure the listeners are thinking. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we have access to this, but... I imagine when this CBA was being put together and teams were voting on certain things, um, would the would how the Canucks at the time uh, voted on this matter or spoke on this matter be potentially in play? Absolutely, yeah, that would be one of the most important uh, things to know in order to you know sort of make a more uh, definitive statement about whether this retroactivity penalty could be applied by the league to the Canucks. Um, so if the Canucks consented to it. Uh, with the full knowledge of how it would apply to Luongo's situation, then game over. They don't have a case. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I mean, it, it's it's pretty clear that this retroactive retroactivity um, provision is in the contract because um, the commissioner was pissed off about these backdiving contracts. And that is a real problem because the commissioner is there to represent the interests of the teams and the general manager, or, or pardon me, and the owners. He's mm-hmm. not there to penalize them for doing things that he doesn't like. So if he put that, you know, arranged for that provision to be in the contract over the protest of the Canucks, you know, he is not acting in the interests of the, um, of the teams that he represents. And he may have, uh, you know, that, that could that could cause a problem <laughs> potentially. It would be basically it's not, it's not cut and dry one way or the other. Uh, for the information that's available publicly, obviously there's some information that's not available publicly. However, um, I think one of the reasons that um, the NHL has turned a blind eye to Robida Island and to you know some of these shenanigans that have gone on with these backdiving contracts that are supposed to be penalized under the CBA is that um, they don't want to end up in seven years of litigation uh, trying to tease out whether they can actually apply this penalty or not with uh, some of their uh, owners and their teams that make up the league. You know, they want to avoid that. So they're going to turn a blind eye to long-term injury reserve. However, if Luongo just straight up says, I'm retiring, they might not have a choice but to uh, try and apply it. So it could potentially be a really sticky situation. Well, and obviously uh, it doesn't necessarily apply to Longo here, but also in a lot of those cases, I think a lot of the guys that are on injury return, long long term injury reserve are unfortunately due to head injuries that were suffered playing in the NHL, and I imagine the league also doesn't, based on um, the backdrop of the concussion lawsuit and everything that's going on with that, uh, and the dialogue there that I, I imagine they, you know the less conversation that goes along here and the less reopening of stuff uh, is probably better for them. Sure. And, and it is, um, you know, anytime a professional, particularly, you know, a hockey player, somebody who's hard on their body gets to 38, 39, 40 years old, um, right. you know, there's always, you can always get a doctor to say, yeah, there's, there's things wrong with this guy and he shouldn't be playing. Like, well, and know. look at, look at Luongo, not only this year, but I think the past couple of years, right. He's missed so much time recurring with yeah. lower body, soft tissue injuries that kind of are sort of nebulous, I guess, from a diagnosis perspective. And, 
he just turned 40 he has over a thousand career starts and that doesn't include both playoff starts but also doesn't include like there's that one period there towards the end of his first tenure in florida and the start of his canucks uh career where he was playing like 75 games (laughs) yeah yeah for like a seven or eight year window which i imagine like the games are one thing but that rapid succession of just insane usage i imagine added countless miles on his body so the fact that he's been able to hold up prior to this season as well as he has it's in terms incredible. of performance and yeah. games is is remarkable and uh why he's a legend and why he's a uh, no doubt about it for his ballot hall of famer and right up there in a discussion of uh, the greatest goalies of his generation so matt um let's get out of here we ran a bit longer than i thought we would but i'm glad we got into we got into that and i'm not gonna ask you to plug stuff because you are out there doing way better uh more impactful <laughs> stuff than talking about hockey for a living uh, well I, so- I actually i will have a piece on canucks army at some time in the next uh, couple of weeks here um looking at um trying to see if uh jim benning has a plan in in his management of the canucks if we can look over the um over the deals that he's made over the past five years and uh, and tease out any kind of direction from what he's done uh so so that's um in progress and it'll be up probably two weeks from now on canucks army oh well, I, I definitely recommend checking that i'm sure you're gonna do uh, your due diligence and and look at every possible scenario which uh man it's a it's a fun it's a fun discussion to be had um all right so matt we're gonna get out of here thanks to everyone for listening to today's show uh apologies i guess because it's kind of a a weird uh format but we're gonna get back to regularly scheduled programming with a ton of playoff analysis and deep dives next week so please check that out and until then let's roll the outro music Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.